Good morning. Welcome to Hope Community Church. Those of you who are here and those of us who, those of you who are joining virtually, we're working our way through um, Luke's account of Jesus' birth, and we're noticing the individuals that Luke uses to proclaim uh, the significance of that event. We're focusing on, we looked at the shepherds and Simeon. This morning we'll look at Anna, and then next week we'll look at the Magi. And we'll learn about the significance of Jesus' birth by looking at and listening to these who were the first Christmas guests. Listen to what it says about Anna. It says, there was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old, and she lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. Uh, Before we begin, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the season. We look back to you sending your son into the world and listening to the individuals who welcomed him. As we think about Anna, I'd ask that we would be able to understand uh, some things about Jesus and about us as we think about and look at this woman. Uh, In Jesus' name, amen says in talking about this woman, she was very old. She lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. Anna was either 84 or she had been a widow for 84 years. And the passage could be saying either one of the two. So if we, let's do the math. She was married for seven years, and at that time, women usually got married at age 12 or 13. So we got age 12 or 13, she would married for seven years, so if she was, she might then have been 84 at the time, or if she was a widow for 84 years, and that really could be what it was saying, she would be about 104. Anyway, she was very old. She had remained a widow after her husband died, and spent her waking hours in the temple for 84 years, fasting and praying. doesn't mean she lived in the temple. There was no place to live in the temple. But what she would do when the temple doors opened, she was there. And she was there all day, fasting and praying, until it was time to leave and probably go to her house. She was a prophetess, a female prophet who waited upon God to speak to her. Now, there's two problems with being a woman prophet at this time in Israel's history. Uh, The first, she was a prophet who lived during what we call the 400 silent years. The last prophet in the Old Testament is Malachi. Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, he prophesied about 430 B.C., And they call that period between Malachi 
And when John the Baptist arrived, the 400 silent years, because there just weren't any prophets prophesying. It was a time of waiting until the time would come when God would send his son. Um, she was a prophetess during a time then when God wasn't speaking. But day after day, when the temple opened, she would go there and listen, and listen and fast and pray all day, and then go back to her home and wake the next day and listen all day, fasting and praying. And then she would go home one year, two years, five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50, 55, 60, 65, 70, 75, 80, 84 years. That had been her practice. She persevered and endured in waiting on God. She felt like there was something that she needed to hear from him. So the first thing that was a problem being a woman prophet in the time is that she was a prophet at a time when God wasn't saying. The second thing that's, that we need to notice is that she was a woman. And Israel was definitely a patriarchal society. It was run by the men. Women were seen as, look frankly, not being worthy of being taught about the scripture. Now they went to school, but it was kind of considered, well, this is what one, this is a quote. It is better that the words of the law should be burned than that they should be given to a woman. And this is one of the Orthodox Jewish prayers at the time. Blessed are you, King of the universe, for not having made me a Gentile. A Gentile is a non-Jew. Blessed are you, King of the universe, for not having made me a slave. Blessed are you, King of the universe, for not having made me a woman. And so there was, in that patriarchal society, women definitely had a role, but their, their ability to, to kind of matter to God was, a little, was called into question. Uh, there are some passages in the Bible that seem to echo this sentiment, that would give the impression that women are second-class spiritual citizens. There's one from 1 Timothy. Here's what it says in 1 Timothy 2, verse 11. Paul writes, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. When you come to passages like this, it's a little bit confusing. Because he's writing then that I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority, but it's confusing because Priscilla and Aquila were a couple who had a house church in their home. Junia was under, outstanding among the apostles. Phoebe was a deaconess. And it's, and it's difficult to believe that these women functioned as leaders in a church, but that they couldn't speak if a guy was there. It just, it just doesn't make sense 
with respect to the kind of functioning that the early church must have, you know, you know, if you were a woman and you were leading the church, you had to speak. So how do we, how do we, what do we do with something like that? I think what happens, there are in the Bible some corrective passages that are passages that are addressing an issue that existed at that time and that Paul is correcting a problem. There are corrective passages and there are directive passages that talk about here's the way things should be. I would say this this passage is the one where it says I'm not permitting a woman to speak. This is not a directive passage which Paul is intending to to cover every single place, but it's a corrective one. Here's what was happening. In this place, Ephesus, to which Paul wrote this letter, there were heretical teachers who were saying things about Jesus and about the gospel that, that weren't right. And what they were doing, they were targeting women who had not had a voice in religion. And what they were telling them is, well, it's too bad that you don't go to my church because if you did, you'd have a real significant role. And, and so the, some of the women in Ephesus were saying, really? And, and yeah, so they were then going and they were spreading some of these heresies within the churches at Ephesus. And what Paul seems to be doing is putting a stop to it by by prohibiting women from having teaching positions, authoritative positions of teaching in the church in Ephesus. Um, It's a corrective text. There are directive texts that talk about the way God wants things to be. Here's what one of those directive passages says. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And what that indicates, Paul's being directive, the way the church is to operate, should operate, unless there are issues, is there's no discrimination based on class, race, or gender. Doesn't mean if it doesn't matter if you're slave or free, doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, you're all one in Christ Jesus. Uh, discrimination in the church is not God's plan. At any rate, although Anna was a prophetess who lived during the silent years and was a woman, she persevered in waiting upon God. We talked about it a little bit last week. The Old Testament prophets indicated that Israel would go through some very difficult times, and they really did. There were a couple captivities, and what the Old Testament prophets indicated, there were going to be times that are going to be very difficult. But in the future, it talks about the consolation or the comforting of Israel. And what they were told is that God's going to do something in Israel. So as they were, um, they've dealt with some very difficult things in the future, they would be consoled or comforted. And the consoler and comforter was a figure that was called the Messiah would come. The word Messiah is a Hebrew word for anointed one. God was going to anoint a leader who would come and would be a Jew. 
who would be raised in Israel, but he would be a worldwide king, and that's Jesus Christ. Christ is the same word for Messiah. Christ is a Greek word, meaning anointed one. Messiah is a Hebrew word, meaning anointed one. When we say Jesus Christ or Jesus the Messiah, we're saying the same thing. We're we're talking about the one anointed by God to bring his rule into the world. Um, And this, she was looking forward, Anna was, to the consolation of Israel when here's one of the promises that she would have memorized and thought of. It's from Isaiah, and this is what it says. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Anna was waiting for that. She was waiting for for God to do something in Israel that would show that he is moving back toward them, and he is establishing them. I want you to think of a woman in our time. Think of a woman who is 104 years old, and think about what she would have experienced. She would have been born... Right at the closing of World War I, would have experienced World War II, the Korean conflict, the Vietnam conflict, different conflicts. Think of all the things she would have experienced. She would have been born at a time when women couldn't vote, and then experienced a time when they could. Um, Anna had experienced a lot of history in her years, whether she was 84 or 104. Um, Israel rebelled and overthrew foreign domination in 164 BC. They had been under the power of the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and then the Syrians, and in 164 BC, they rebelled against the Greeks and the Syrians, and they won their independence. And it talks about one of the great times in Israel's history when they went into the temple and they cleansed it of all foreign entanglement, and they they made it as God intended it to be when he met with them at Mount Sinai. Uh, So Anna would have spent the first part of her life in a free country. They weren't under the power of anyone until 63 BC, when the Romans, the Roman Empire, attacked and captured Israel. Um, The consolation of Israel, they might have thought that at this time in 164 BC, when they threw off the oppressor, that that was the fulfillment of this passage in Isaiah, but it turned out not to be. They were free for about a hundred years, and then they entered back into captivity once again. And Anna lived during this time. She continued to wait upon God to fulfill his promise. She never, it says, she never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Her activity pictures a person totally focused on God and faithful to him. Again, her endurance is the thing that's incredible. Without any visual help to see if if God's promise is being 
is fulfilled in us. She kept on trusting in him year after year after year. She persevered in waiting on God to fulfill his promise. And then comes the time when Joseph and Mary are entering the temple to dedicate the child. And it hits her. This is him. This is the one who has been promised, the consoler of Israel, the redeemer of the world. And what it says, coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. Um, she came upon Joseph and Mary, and then it doesn't, it, it, her words are not recorded. But what she did do, she turned and talked to anyone who would listen. And after 84 years of waiting, she heard from God. Which leads us to a question. Luke could have talked about all kinds of different individuals who welcomed Jesus into the world, who were the first Christmas guests. Why did he choose these two? Why why shepherds? And why Simeon? And why Anna? You know, these old, old an old man and, a, and an old woman. Uh, Jesus showed when he was here that he was the Messiah, the anointed one. He did miracles. He rose from the dead. He was the one that was predicted. However, the consolation of Israel didn't happen. Anna, I'm not sure what she would have thought. She must have died before Jesus died. But you know what happened to Jesus? He died on a Roman cross. And what happened after that is that a Jewish revolt in the years following when Paul died in the mid-60s, there was a Jewish revolt where they wanted to throw off Roman dominion. And what ended up happening? Rome ended up sending an army. And in 70 BC, the city of Jerusalem was completely obliterated and destroyed. The reason why I point that out is that it's, they thought that the promise was going to be fulfilled at that time, but it wasn't fulfilled at that time. Here's what Jesus indicated when he was here, that this consolation that would happen would have to wait until his second coming. We look back at the time when Jesus came the first time. And when he came the first time, he was a little baby, born in a feeding trough of very humble parents. He entered the world as we do. And you know why he did that? So he could understand what we experience. In the Old Testament, angels were the ones who were God's servants, his his mediators. And an angel is an unembodied spirit being. And an angel can't understand what it's like to be like you and me, embodied spirit being. They don't know what it feels like to be hungry and cold. They don't know what it feels like to have pain and hurt and sorrow. But God sent his son, and he could have sent him when he was a 30-year-old man, but he didn't. He placed his son in a womb so that he had to be born like you and I are born. And he was raised in a world like you and I are. He felt cold and he felt hunger. He worked and 
The reason why Jesus came is so that he could identify with you and sympathize, sympathize with you. He knows what it's like. When he was the night before he died, if you remember, he said, Father, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. You know what it's saying? He understands what it's like to be afraid and unsure. Now, it didn't stop him from doing what he did, but he felt it. Why is that important? I think we really need to believe that Jesus sympathizes with us. He understands what it's like to feel agitated. He understands what it's like to feel sad. The reason he does that is because when we approach God, God the Father is a spirit. He hasn't lived on the earth, but he sent his Son so that we could know as we approach God that Jesus approaches God with us and Jesus really understands what it's like to be a human, what it's like to to feel feelings, because he's an embodied spirit being, just like you and I. And let's see what's going to happen. Jesus is an immortal spirit in an immortal body. You and I, we are immortal spirits in mortal bodies. What's going to happen? Because with Jesus came the first time, he's going to come another time. A second time. I'm going to read a passage that talks about that. Let me tell you what's going to happen. When Jesus comes the second time, if he came today, what would happen? We would see him. The first time he came, it wasn't visible. The second time he comes, he's going to be large and in charge. He's not going to be a little baby, and he's not going to be humble. He's going to be a conquering, ruling king. No one is going to be able to stand before him. And what's going to happen? He is going to, if, if, we, if he came today, what would happen? We would be raised up and we would, our bodies would become transformed into immortal bodies that never hunger and never wear down and never have pain. That's, we're going to live in the form that Jesus exists in now. Jesus is an immortal spirit in an immortal body. And those who believe in Christ... 100 years from now, we're going to be immortal spirits in immortal bodies. Now, we go to be with him when we die. When he comes a second time, then we are going to get immortal bodies to put our immortal spirits in. Here's what Jesus said when he was passing by Jerusalem, and he was talking about his second coming. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Jesus was predicting what happened in 70 AD when Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. He goes on, and there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the seas and the waves. He goes on, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. We look back to Jesus' first coming. What Jesus points us to, he's going to come back again. And when he says, when he comes back the second time, our redemption will draw near and he will create a kingdom 
of individuals who are immortal spirits and immortal bodies, and we will live in that place as we believe that he came. That's what Jesus says. When Jesus, when Jesus came up and was lifted up, uh, the last thing that they saw, the disciples were with him, and they were there, and they saw him just go up into the sky. And here's what an angel said. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. When Jesus comes a second time, we'll see him coming in a cloud in great glory. And what it says, when these things begin to take place, and you believe in him, you don't have to cower. You don't have to be afraid. Straighten up. But it says, straighten up. Raise your head. Don't duck. Because your redemption is drawing near. And Jesus comes a second time. He came a first time. And that's what we celebrate this week. He's going to come again. As sure as he came the first time, he says he's going to come again. And when he does... That's a day we're going to be able to stand up straight and raise our heads because comfort has come. Consolation has come and Jesus will put all things right. Let me pray for us. Uh, thank you for Jesus' entry into this world, his first coming, for what he did. And he died so that we could become members of your forever family. And this past 2,000 years has been a time when the initial Jewish Christians said things, did things. They were recorded. And now we Gentiles have heard about the good news. And we are able, 2,000 years later, to still think about Jesus, to, to think about his coming into the world at Christmas time and all through the year. And thanks for that. And as surely as he came once, you promise he's going to come again. Anna waited year after year. It's hard to wait. Would you give us the strength and the perseverance we need to continue to be the people you want us to be? We look to that time when you will bring things into a conclusion. You will send your son, and then eternity will begin. Thanks for that, in Jesus' name. Amen.